Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. Loads to come in the show. Also later in the programme, we'll be talking to trainers Jamie Osborne and Eve Johnson-Horton about the row that's uh, engulfed the sport this week over prize money with the Arena Racing Company. I'll be talking to Victoria Malzar, the Jersey-born rider who had her first success under rules at Cheltenham yesterday on Kansas City Chief for Neil Mulholland. And we'll also be checking in with James Ferguson, the trainer who trained his first Group 1 winner yesterday with El Bodegon in the Criterion de Saint-Cloud in France. Congratulations to him. Now, we'd like you to get involved in the programme as well. Our email address, as you can see there, is luckonsunday at racingtv.com. Hashtag luckonsunday, your tweets at luckonsunday. And if you want us to talk about anything in particular today, we might just add that to our talking points a little bit later on when I'll be joined by the Racing Post's Maddie Playle. But really pleased to welcome Harry Enright to the programme. Just, what, a couple of months shy of the 18th, Harry? Yeah. Yep, just a couple of months shy. Um, doing well with the riding at the minute. We've got a massive story ahead of us, as I think everyone is getting now to see. Um, there's a lot happening. We've got loads of arms, ideas happening. Um, yeah, it's exciting. Just so those of you who haven't seen the news this week and not familiar with it, and Great British Racing have released a, a really good video charting your journey from when you started riding at, at the British Racing School to... To now, and as people know, you were born with just one hand, just born with your your right hand, so no left hand, and it, it, it's something that there's no explanation for. That's just the way the way it was. Yeah, That's right, isn't it? Just the way I was born. Um, I never, from a very young age, never been told that um, I was born with anything to cause this or anything as such. Um, yeah, I was just born like it. I just still crack away with it. And you're a, a London guy from South East London. Yeah. Um, what got you into into riding? What what started the love of horses? Well, I loved I loved the way the animals had looked from a very young age, and the way they move is just completely unreal. Um, yeah, sat on a donkey over in Ireland, as you probably have seen from the video. Um, yeah, and it sort of just kicked on from there, and had had to find my path somewhere I wanted to go, and I chose horse racing, obviously, because who doesn't like the the thoroughbreds. That's a, that's amazing. So, so you just—it was one sit on a donkey in Ireland. It was just that what, just that feeling of just the feeling of the way they move, the legs, oh, the way they shake the heads, the breathing. Oh, it's just all—it just kicked away from there for me. Uh, you're obviously quite a, a natural athlete. You've got a great sort of shape to be a to be a rider as well. Um, were there other sports that that could have been could have been on the agenda? I did play. I did play a lot of football when I was young. Um, a lot of my family are football people, so they love to go to a few of the games or love to watch it at home. Um, yeah, just kicked around for a little bit with football. Um, then I had an injury on a, on a push bike, sadly. Um, now I damaged my knee, so I didn't end up playing no more and carried on with the horse side of things and weren't very good, to be fair, at football, I will say. <laughs> But you're you're clearly doing much much better riding. Um, we ought to we ought to just tell everyone that for some inexplicable reason, even though you're from South East London and all of your nearly all of your extended family support Millwall, somehow you're a you're a Spurs fan. Yeah, it's, um, that's uh, I blame that one on my dad. Um, yeah, he kicked. He sort of didn't make us, but had like this little teaser saying that this team was a bit better than that team. So yeah, it was like a family little aggression. Whose team's better? So. So when you said to to your parents, um, I think I'm I think I'm going to go and try and be a jockey. What what was their reaction? Um, 
It was very, it was a very bland reaction, and what <laughs> I what I thought it would have been, to be fair. Um, yeah, just went up to my mum one day and turned around and said, "Look, I want to, I want to do this," and she was like, "All right then, you got to find out a place where you can do it though, and you got to learn, you got to start really getting into it, otherwise, it, won't, it just won't fall through." And um, yeah, I started riding, your at the local riding stable. Um, yeah, just learning the basics. I did that, I did that for about four years. Carried on riding the basics, and then eventually I just, I just thought, you know, we've got to step up a little bit. These guys have taught me everything they know, so got to step up on the game. And evidently, you you've always been able to adapt in terms of what we were talking about riding bikes, and you just had your moped from the BRS, and I was saying, yeah. you know, do you need anything to help? You've steered. No, you've always adapted, just using your your right hand. But obviously. Riding a horse, it's a it's a little bit different. So, when did you realise that something a little bit more drastic was needed if you were going to have to realise your ambition to be a jockey? Um, with things like you're saying, like the bikes and everything like that, all those I would say challenges in my sake. Um, they don't they do get they are hard. They like normal average life can be hard with certain things of what I what I'm doing. But um, majority of the time, it's all 100%, and I'll find a way through it and, you know, just f keep going with it. Yeah, because I sense when you said challenges like that, you don't really see it as a, yeah, as a challenge, do you? Yeah, yeah I'm not, I, don't see, I don't see anything really as a challenge for me. I just, if I see the challenge, it's like a, it's like a fence mm. at the Grand National. It, it's a big fence, but if you want, it, if you want something that bad, you've just got to jump it and send it. And, and this is a, this is just a big fence because it's just a practicality, isn't it? Yeah, this is just the pro we've got a, this this little piece here. We've actually this is only a prototype at the minute. So this is what's been designed by uh, Andrew Braithwaite, who's the finance director at the British Racing School. But we're going to hear from Andrew in a few moments' time. But he is this has been a labour of love for him, hasn't it? Yeah, really, yeah, designing um, a, a prototype prosthesis. So you you ultimately might be able to ride in races. Yep, yep, hopefully well, that's the end goal anyway. But um, yeah, Andrew's been, love, loves messing around with the arm, exploring new things on it, making sure it works 100% each time. And um, yeah, now we've got to where we are now. I can't, can't thank him enough, to be honest. Well, you're going to get your opportunity in, in a few moments' time, but uh, are you going to demonstrate it for me? Yes, I shall demonstrate. <laughs> so, this right here yeah. is a... It's like a latex glove, mm -hmm. and um, it just slips on the arm, just rolls on like that. And I have to do, I do have to make sure it's on there sometimes. Just give it a run up the arm, and then I'll. This is the arm, and that's then pretty secure, yeah. isn't it? So, so this little piece on the end, it's a, it's like a, it's like a homemade screw sort of thing, and. Um, so if I pulled that now, it wouldn't. Oh, yeah, come, that, I can that pull that up. pretty hard, and that yeah. won't come. That's just not going to come off at all, is it? <laughs> Time for war on TV. <laughs> um, yeah. So this little piece on the end here, that will, um, in the end of the arm, there's a like a lock system in there, uh -huh. which is this is the release for it. This small little button there. Um, I just plug my arm in, and you, you heard a click. click. There's another two, another three. And now that is, I'm ready to rock and roll. So, right, so what, the, the, the metal on the end, the so metal drum on the end, what's that doing? So this yeah. is the magnet. To be fair, it's quite, quite warm. Mm -hmm. um, this is the magnet. It hold, it's been holding a ridiculous amount of horses lately. I'm surprised it hasn't completely just gone to scrambles. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, work, well, it works, it's comfortable. It's actually a quite a heavy piece that this is actually taking most of the weight of the whole entire arm itself this is if magnet was not on here mm -hmm. this would be it's so light this is silicon cone so this is weight basically weighs nothing so, compared so to what I, what I want to know is how does this feel to your upper body are you feeling in your um, in your left shoulder and through your left upper arm are you feeling that you're having to carry something much heavier there than you are with your with your right hand. It, I mean, from from compared to from the first time that I rode it. Yeah. Yeah, I was 
I was it felt like I would just had something in my hand or a shopping bag in my hand for about 25 minutes to an hour and this was when my arm wasn't actually fully adapted to this and um, yeah it just was really heavy and then I just kept riding and riding and riding hoping and praying that that pain would just ease off and calm down a little bit and thank God it did and it's no different for the shoulders um, all the muscles are working with it so so it's just taking your brain a while to train itself to, to learning how to use it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just taking a little bit of time just to get used to and it's basically just gone from there. And this has all been designed uh, by Andrew in his spare time and put together by him. And so just tell us the sort of safety aspect of it, if you like, how, how this all works. So this is the piece that I have on the reins. It's, I don't actually... I constantly forget the name of it, but... Um, it's used for climbing. It's, the reins are just normal rope. We've got some leather on the end of it just so that sits by the bit. Mm -hmm. um, my arm will go in this cup. Yeah. And when the arm goes in the cup... Ah, uh, so that's what holds the reins. Now that's locked in there. Yeah. And that, that's not going to break at all. No. That is, like, that is on there. But then I can hear everybody at home thinking, well, well what, if you, what if you fall? So if I fall off... This little piece here, we've got this. This will sit on on my leg, just below my knee. Uh huh. And this weight, this was this is the weight cloth that we have under the saddle with the battery in here. And as soon as a horse throws a party trick for me, I will just if it wants to pop off, it'll it'll naturally come it apart. It will just yeah. naturally come apart just like that, and I'm a free man. How does it feel when you... Because you, you've been riding a while now. Yeah. And you've ridden plenty of flighty horses oh, who've yeah. done all the party tricks. Yeah. So when you do come off and when you do get dropped, does it feel quick? Does it feel natural? Yeah, it's quick and snappy. There's... When it... it when, once the circuit's broke, it's... It's broken. Like, the, it's, it just cuts out completely and I'm able to be free. The horse can move itself away and sort himself out a little bit and then hopefully come back to me and carry on with what we're meant to be doing. Um, how many hairy moments have you had? Um, I've had quite a few, to be fair. Um, few in, I've had three in one hour on one horse, <laughs> the same one. Um, yeah, there's been quite a few. I haven't had many, to be fair. I've only ever had, like, ten drops in. But are you finding that that... Are you finding sort of riding more difficult horses and putting yourself into challenging situations, is that helping your confidence and confidence with all of this as well? Yeah, yeah, just, it's just a, as I say, it's like a challenge. You've just got to push through it and if you want to get better and better at something, you've only got to put yourself in, in for the grind, you know, and you've got to keep pressing on with it. I was quite struck earlier on when you said your mum had given you quite a kind of vanilla response to, yeah. to saying, I want to be a jockey. But it, is that the key, partly, that if you ever say to your mum, I want to do X. She just goes, yeah, okay, great. Get on with it. There's never a, oh, you've only got one hand. How are you going to do that? No, yeah, mum's 100%. She, she knows, for obviously, from having me from a young child, she knows everything I can do, which is basically everything. Um, she, yeah, if I ask her, can I go and do X, Y, and Z, she'll just say, yeah, we'll, we'll sort it out. We'll go and do it. We'll organise it, and we'll sort it out properly. And obviously, go and do what, go and do what we need to do. Now, here you are with, um, with your folks at the BRS. Yep, that's uh, my folks. Brushing off the horse there. That horse actually is well behaved. He's so most safest horse I've ever ridden in my entire life. And what's he called? His name's Deviation. He's never ran before. He's not a proper racehorse. But, um, proper schoolmaster. Yeah, he's a proper schoolmaster for, for things like this, I would say, to be fair. Knows, he knows his job. And I'm guessing that safe. even though there's a lot of specialist work going into trying to get you on a racehorse and trying to get you in races, I'm sensing you're the sort of person who doesn't really want any special treatment. No, yeah, I'm not. I mean, I've had um, people ask me, would you rather this, would you rather that, do you need help with this, do you need help with that? And I've always turned around and said, I'll, I'll be cool, I'll it's, there's no problems. I just just get get on with it. Really, there's there's no turning ways around it. 
And a lot of the people I've spoken to in here of late who have started riding and not from a racing background, you sort of ask why, and they just say it feels natural to be on a horse. It's funny how some people are just wired like that. Yep, yep, that's it. As soon as I got on, it was just a natural thing that I stuck with and didn't, didn't want to stop it, to be honest. As you say, when the horse is moving, oh, it's crazy. The breathing underneath, and you just talk to them, they relax, drop their heads a little bit, and you just float away nicely, just going up nice and steady up the canter. And that is a, a perfect illustration exactly of how, this, of how this works. So how many stages off putting something like this into a race riding scenario do you think we are? Because obviously this is, this is in development really, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, not too sure, to be honest. Just thought, you know, throw it in, see what happens. Um, never thought like, it would have gone like this, but... Um, yeah, it's a bit, that's a bit of a tough one, to be honest. Well, it's, it's a work in progress. And the man responsible for um, putting this all together is, as I say, Andrew Braithwaite, who uh, is the uh, finance director of the British Racing School and uh, is with us now. Morning, Andrew. Morning, Nick. And uh, m morning, Harry. Good morning. Um, how much um, pleasure do you take from seeing Harry riding with this, uh, with this contraption that you've brilliantly designed? Um, yeah, huge amount of pleasure, Nick. Um, uh, I, th I think that's a, a really good word. Uh, Harry's just been a, a pleasure to be around and to, to have at the racing school right from right from day one. And um, I think good good lesson for everyone. If you if you're likable and you're determined, then um, then people will want to help you out. And um, that's certainly been the case with Harry. So uh, yeah, it's been great fun. Well, you've done you've done more than help. You've potentially changed his his life and the lives of an awful lot of other people who may, in due course, want to ride competitively with with prostheses. This is very much something in development. How did you come up with all the bits and pieces and the ideas? Have you got? Are you an inventor? Are you a a, a bit of a, a bit of a mad scientist? Um, uh, I, I don't think so. I don't think I could, could claim to be an inventor, but. Um... Rode a bit myself as an amateur, so when, so when Harry sort of, sort of appeared on the scene with us at the racing school, and he'd done a little bit of work with um, with Dorset uh, prosthetics already, um, and uh, I just felt sort of the line they were going down was 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 perhaps uh, never going to quite work as well as it, it needed to. Um, so yeah, just just got th thinking, and um, the the aim from the from the get go really was to um, to try and find a solution for Harry that. So, so all the all the adaptation was with Harry, and and the horses didn't need to adapt to him in any way because uh, you, you know obviously to succeed in racing you need to um, you, you know stable staff are riding uh, riding loads of different horses every week and every year, and um, the the race horses can't adapt to you. you. You need to adapt to them. So um, yeah, we just we just got started and um, trial and error really. But I mean this is this is quite complex uh, engineering. I I, I and almost everyone I know watching this program wouldn't even know where to start. So clearly th this is something you've got to have a, a gift for. You've got to have vision and, and real understanding of the, of the um, ergonomics of it, I guess. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, well, I think, I, I think it could, because, because I'd ridden a bit myself, I understood what we're aiming at in terms of, of how, you, how you want to hold, hold a set of reins. And um, so I kind of had in my head what, what, we, what we needed, but didn't really know didn't really know uh, how to do it and uh, it was actually just through speaking to, to to mates really that we got there and um big big bit of credit to to a lady called Vanessa Cashmore who um uh, aside from being a, a genius academic and well on the way to proving that that female jockeys are actually uh, as good if not better than males um she she she's also massively into her climbing and um so I, I spoke to her and she she just she was actually in Chamonix at the time, and just just sent back a video saying, "This is the piece of kit that you need, and um, that that's the piece of kit that, that Harry's just shown to you there." And um, once we had that, we we sort of knew that the holding the reins would work. So so then we just sort of moved on to um, to to trying to find a way of fitting it onto onto the prosthetic, and then and then another solution to to making it safe. And um, yeah, you you, you say. Um, a lot of people wouldn't know where to start, and I, th I think 
we didn't we didn't either we just we just started and um kind of made it up as we went along and uh you, you know we've, we've we've got to a to a decent prototype now and and the key is just to to keep making it better Welcome back, Maddie Plough from the Racing Post is with me this week. Uh, Maddie, great to see you. That was fantastic, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely brilliant. Really, really inspiring. Um, great story. Great young man. And it just proves, you know, for all racing does have its faults, how brilliant that we can shout about that sort of story. And we should be. We should be over the moon because it's incredible. But also that, um, you know, Andrew Braithwaite, who has a full-time job, is spending so much of his spare time developing this because it's a you know it's a passion project he could make such a huge difference to so many people that's it i don't think this is just for racing wise either you know the technology and the the process that you go through i'm sure that could benefit so many people i think that's representative of racing you know we give it a hard time but really people are in it for the love of the horses the love of the people and they're willing to do go to the ends of the earth for you really and, as you say, to, to help each other out. Story of the day yesterday at Cheltenham? I don't think there's any doubt, is there? No, it's got to be Victoria Malzard. Um, I really loved that, and I thought it was a fantastic ride as well. Um, you know, the horse, Kansas City Chief, has, has been notoriously tricky uh, on different occasions. And although he didn't lead immediately, she was confident. She just said, well, let him go on, find his own rhythm. And I think that was really key. She, she didn't think, right, I'll hold him back. She let him get on with it. And just really balanced, you know, everything was smooth, there was no rush, uh, and magnificent performance. Her first winner in Britain as well. The runner-up is in the Belfast Banter colours, the blue sleeves with the white cap and the star on the cap. Kevin Sexton taking the ride. Uh, I suspect that had that horse jumped, he'd have given Victoria more of a fright, but, but he, he didn't. Simple as that. He didn't, and even look at the winner here, so slick. Uh, and low and just Victoria just gives him I think a couple of, of smacks she knows exactly what she's doing and just thought it was fantastic achievement well he's well into the pensioner stage this horse but that on yesterday's evidence is just a number as he bounded up the hill spring heeled and Victoria's with us now Victoria congratulations um, tell me how it feels the morning after um, I, I still can't put it into words honestly it hasn't sunk in yet it, it is what I've jumped off and it's just amazing, really. Just for those, those of you who, who aren't familiar, just tell us a little bit about your, your background. You're, you're from a Jersey racing family, aren't you? Yes, uh, my mum's the 15-time champion trainer out there, so I've had, had a bit of a head start out there. I've been riding out there since I was 16. Um, so, yeah, I've started out there and it's really blossomed. So it's a, it's a big blow for, for Channel Islands Racing, this as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Did you did you get loads of messages from from back home last night? Yeah, my my phone has been going mad all evening, and it still is this morning, really. So, how long have you been with Neil Mulholland? Um, this is my third season with Neil, so uh, yeah. And this horse, Kansas City Chief, we know quite a bit about him. He has been occasionally a little bit of a monkey in the past, but he he looked like he was on his best behaviour yesterday. Yeah, he, he has his quirks, but he's such a dude horse and he looks after me and he makes makes everything so easy for me which is what I, what I need really and he looked he looked incredibly willing and, and genuine yesterday as well did you know from fairly on in the race that that you were in the right groove yeah I mean he, he doesn't he jumps for fun and he, he was pulling my arms up to begin with and when he got to the front he just he settled into a lovely rhythm and there was no one going to pass him yesterday and just the, the, the relationship between you and he is obviously a, obviously a pretty crucial one. Um, would you ride him most days? Yeah, I, I ride him every day at home. Um, I ride him out in a half more because he gets quite a sore mouth because he can be quite keen. So it, he uh, challenges me every day. <laughs> I love riding him and he is just an absolute pleasure to ride. So just for those who, who, who don't know, a hackamore is a bitless bridle, isn't it? So you, you ride him with no bit. And, and he's okay with that. Yeah, he's he's actually a, a lot nicer to ride in that than he is to ride with a bit in, which is quite surprising. But it seems to work for him. So. And just to experience that on that stage, and I know you've 
you've ridden there before, but just to experience a winner coming into that winner's enclosure at Cheltenham. Big crowd there yesterday, race televised on ITV. Just try and give me a, a, a sense of what that all felt like. Um, it, it really is undescribable. Like, the atmosphere there was amazing, and to have the crowds there as well was, was just even better. And so what now for you and what now for him? Um, I mean... Hopefully all roads lead to the festival in March and we'll have a crack at the finals, but I'm not sure where we'll go between now and then. Um, I'll leave that up to Neil. And I don't, think, I don't think he's got to do an awful lot now between now and then, has he? No, maybe one or, one or two more runs um, just to keep him going, but March is the aim. And, and as far as you're concerned, I mean, you're, you're obviously hoping that's going to be a, a springboard to a, a, a fruitful season. What have you and Neil discussed as, as regards plans for the for the future? Um, we haven't we haven't really discussed anything. Um, just taking each day as it comes, and uh, I'm just keeping my head down, working hard, and taking every opportunity I can. Really. State of rest, four off the lead as they're about to pack up. Animos, five off the lead, very elegant, getting going. Captive on at the 500 metres, they're in the middle of the track. Yendall goes for the whip, here come the runs. Mawunga up around the outside. Dallasan trying to cut the corner, then call sign Mab. Running through them, State of rest has got the split. 300 to go, and the Irish horse sprints clear. State of rest a length, Animo follows it through, and very elegant to the outside at the 200. State of rest a neck, Animo. Very elegant late. It's State of Rest at the 100. Animo wearing it down. State of Rest just in front of Animo. State of Rest holding on. State of Rest, I think, has just won for the Emerald Isle from Animo and very elegant. Then came Mawunga. Next to finish, Probabil, Dallasan, Colstein, Mab, and Cap Devont in a thrilling cups plate. Uh, commentary from the inimitable Matt Hill as State of Rest wins the Ladbrokes Cox Plate for dual Melbourne Cup winning trainer Joseph O'Brien, having picked up a grade one in Saratoga earlier in the year. What a training performance this was, but that was only half the drama, Maddie, because he had to survive a steward's inquiry. I, I timed it at well over half an hour before he was confirmed the official winner. And he did, as you saw from the overhead angle, sort of drift into the runner-up and... It was very, very, very close call. Tough call. Drama before the race with Zaki being scratched, elevated temperature, gold trip. We've heard so much about the procedures, the veterinary mm. procedures. He was also um, unable to run. And then drama in the race with uh, a lengthy stewards inquiry. First time I watched it, I thought the, the images were a little bit deceptive. I thought Animo was leaning in, but second time, not at all. It was a, it was a bump, uh, very close in the finish. It's a tough one. I'm inclined to, to trust the stewards on this one, I think. I, th I thought he might go, I must confess. I was delighted for Joseph O'Brien and all the connections that, that he didn't. But I, I, I sympathised a little with, with Craig Williams on Animo. Just look now, and if you just look at the, the moan lines on the track, and, and you look at the way Animo comes back at the finish, everyone said, well, in England, that... That wouldn't have been thrown out. I think currently in England, that would have been he would have been thrown out. That's the thing, isn't it? It's it's consistency and getting these big decisions right. The one thing I would say is State of Rest is clearly a very genuine horse, even in the Brilliant. photo finish. Brilliantly genuine. You saw his head bowed down. Animo, I get the feeling, not suggesting he's ungenuine, um, but he might need things to fall his way. Lo so. Loads of good stories here, Maddie. John Allen um, struggling. To, to get any rides in Ireland, goes to the Southern Hemisphere and becomes one of the top jockeys in Australia, wins a Cox Plate. Uh, we've got an international horse winning a Cox Plate in a year where it seems impossible for internationals to do anything in Australia, or even get into the race through the vet checks. Yep. So that's a big, a big score for Victoria there. Definitely. Uh, and we'll wait and see how things work out in the Melbourne Cup. And Joseph O'Brien, and even they ain't O'Brien, they've both had fantastic years travelling their horses internationally. I wonder what it is about those scenarios that's unlocked this potential as opposed to them doing it closer to home. The likes of, you know, you saw it with Santa Barbara, this horse won at Saratoga as well and then went to the Cox Plate. Well, maybe this, this is a horse who's in that kind of mezzanine level. He's not quite a Group 1 horse in, in Europe and... He's young, so he's still on the upgrade. He's improving. And maybe if you do have to pass 
stringent vet checks now. You're better off going to Australia with a three-year-old with relatively low mileage so you haven't got that wear and tear showing up on scintigraphy scans and, and so forth. Maybe, maybe. Um, it's clearly been a big team effort uh, to complete a journey like this and it's paid off. Um, and I, I often say, you know, people are quick to take a jibe and say, oh, well, he wasn't great over here, mm. yet he's, he's fantastic over there. But horses excel in different conditions and it's impossible to say whether he's the same horse over there that he was that we've seen over here. He could have improved for the style of racing, for the climate, for anything. So that's why I find the, the international uh, parallels that we can make between the two jurisdictions. It's good fun, isn't it? I mean, we all love... Uh, having a bit of banter about it but it, it, it is you can't make conclusions uh, easily when it comes to this sort of thing I don't think so anyway I think that can be a bit foolish sometimes uh, What an international success story Joseph O'Brien has been already in his training career and in no horse has that been better uh, embodied than, than in State of Rest who won the Cox Plate yesterday to add to his victory at Saratoga earlier in the year and just a three year old as well and just his third start of the year and Joseph O'Brien's with me now Joseph morning Morning, Nick. How are you? Uh, very well. I mean, you, you've trained Breeders' Cup winners, Melbourne Cup winners. Uh, there was something quite special about what, what this horse achieved yesterday. Where does, where does that rank? Yeah, it was very special. Um, uh, Nick it ranks right up there with, you know, any of our big wins. Um, and, you know, an awful lot of credit has to go to uh, Mark Power and MJ Dorn, who've been in Australia with the horse over the last number of weeks. Um, with Mark Hackett in the office, who's who managed all the logistics of uh, of um, travelling down there, um, and you know Richard Ryan and Jim Coburn, who uh, have been very game and, and were very keen to uh, um, have a crack at the Cox Plate, and um, you know a lot of credit has to go to the team of people that we have around us. I, I want to know about how the plan was hatched because it's pretty unusual to go race here, race in America, race in Australia, just a young three-year-old. What was the germination of this? Yeah, well, I suppose um, uh, he ran, he missed the spring, he had a little hole up in the spring and missed, missed the, the kind of spring summer. So he came back and ran an enlisted race in the Curra and he ran third, I think, but ran really well and, and you know, arguably was an unlucky loser. And from there, uh, we were keen to have a go at the Saratoga Derby. We thought the race would set up well for him and we thought the conditions of the race would suit him well. So, so that was that was the plan, and we went there, and obviously he won in Saratoga, which was fantastic. And from there, we I suppose it was either Breeders' Cup, um, or Ascot, or or the Cox Plate, and and um, um, you know, we we discussed the options, and uh, the Cox Plate obviously has a fantastic prize money, but it was logistically and and uh, probably the most difficult option to get to the race but um uh, it was probably his best chance of winning uh, uh, one of the three races so so that was that was uh, uh, discussed with with the owners and richard and uh, uh, jim and um you know everybody but he was keen to have a go at the cox plate and and uh, you know i i have to thank them and uh, and i owe an awful lot of an awful lot of the credit uh, it goes to them because it was an expensive trip and uh, um, I'm, glad, I'm glad that he managed to get his head in front. Oh yeah, and um, this is the moment that I would imagine that, that was giving you fairly sort of anxious seconds and minutes after the race, uh, the moment when State of Rest just gave Animo a little nudge. Uh, how did you feel during that steward's inquiry? It seemed interminable. Yeah, it, it went on for a long time, um, Nick. Originally, I didn't think there was a huge amount in it, and uh, I still don't think there was. But it just it was going on for so long that we did we did get a bit nervous, and uh, it was an anxious wait. Um, you know, I'm pretty confident had it been in. Uh, you know, anywhere here in Europe or whatever, there would have been nothing about it. But just there, when we're not familiar with how the stewards uh, deal with these incidents, um, and it was going on for so long, we, we we were getting nervous. Okay, so what next for this horse? Um, I suppose we, we haven't planned made a made a firm plan yet. He has an option of going to the McKinnon. He has an option in Hong Kong, and we obviously could always take him home and see what you know train him for the spring. So um, he, he seems to have pulled up well, but we'll see how he is over the next few days, and it will be discussed with with the owners, and then you know we'll make a decision from there. I mean, we make it sound quite easy sometimes, but he he is still relatively inexperienced. What do you think it is about him that's equipped him so well for doing this? He's very. He's a very tough horse, Nick. Um, he's a 
quite an a quite a quite a strong character. Um, um, things don't phase him. Um, he only lost a half a kilo on his journey from Ireland to Australia, um, and I think it was those five flights, which is incredible, really. Um, and uh, and that just goes to show the constitution that he has. So um, um, you know, he he's the type of horse that you can have a go at. You know, a big a big journey or a big task uh, like what like going to Australia. And a big win for, for John Allen. It must have given you quite a bit of pleasure to provide that for him. Fantastic, yeah. yeah Johnny gave the horse a brilliant ride. Uh, he won on a horse called Downdraft for us a few years ago uh, in Australia. And um, obviously he, he uh, used to work uh, for my granddad here at the hill, and uh, so so there was you know there was always a connection there through 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 them, and uh, um, you know he's obviously a top rider, and we were delighted to be able to get him on board. Uh, just looking ahead to international um, assignments, Joseph, will you have a team for the Breeders' Cup this year? Uh, yeah, we have have a couple of entries, Nick. So um, uh, we hope we hope to be taking part there, um, and uh, you know really looking forward to that. It's always a fantastic meeting and um, a very special meeting. What are you thinking of at the moment? Uh, so Thunder Moon is a possible in the mile um, um, and Thundering Nights is an option in the in the fillies and mares. Um, so, so um, um, yeah, it'll be discussed with the owners and uh, then we'll, we'll uh, make, it, make, make, make a final decision from there. The entries are tomorrow. There might be misery everywhere you look, but there's a lot of joy in the world as well. And there's a lot of joy in horse racing, particularly if you've just trained your first Group 1 winner, as James Ferguson has done with El Bodegon at uh, San Clue yesterday. James, good morning and many congratulations. Good morning, Nick. Thank you very much. Um, not a bit. I mean, we spoke a, a couple of weeks ago uh, before your lovely filly ran such a good race at Newmarket. And you said to have two two-year-olds running in Group 1s is the stuff of dreams. Can you dream now over the winter about having a derby horse? I think we can dream of having a very good horse, yes. I think um, where we go exactly, I, I, I'll, I'll wait until next year to decide. But it's, it's, I, it still hasn't quite sunk in. I think um, he did it that well, and we were all in a bit of shock when he, when he went over the line. But um, obviously, it's, it's, it's like, like I said to you a couple of weeks ago, you know, to have, um, to have two horses that are real Group 1 contenders next year and one that's, one that's already won a Group 1 is... It's, it's stuff of dreams, you know. That's why we get in the game. That's why we work so hard. And um, you know, it's just just credit to all the team back at home and to the owners that have supported us. I mean, there's a picture of you here with your your rider, your Ritzmond Isabel. What a uh, autumn of his career he's having. You were over on the left there. You look completely shell shocked. I, I I I was standing there with a couple of the owners, and uh, and the first time in my life I've never cheered one home. I was just stood there starstruck with about a furlong to go, trying to work out what was happening because um. You know, it wasn't necessarily the plan to go forward, but um, you know, Eric, he knows the track very well, knows the pace of the race, and um, you know, obviously knew what he had under him because he'd ridden the horse before, and you know, the horse just ticked on, and obviously the soft ground definitely helped, and and they struggled to get to him. But no, I was, uh, it, it's definitely taken a bit of time to sink in, but, uh, um, but what a what a great ride he gave it. it. Is soft ground a thing for this horse? Does he does he need it or does he just cope with it? Um, to be honest with you, Nick, he. I've never run him on anything that's not, um, so I, I'm sure he. I'm sure he'll be versatile. Um, but if you've got the option to run on soft ground, you know you're better off than, than most of the others. And, and given that you've taken him to France uh, more than once now, is France going to be a, a, a furrow that you plough next year? Do you think when you look at the classics? Um, sorry, it's very windy. I hope you can hear me. Um, I can hear you. Uh, look. It's, he travels very well. Um, you know, he, 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 he's almost happier going away, going to France than he is here. Um, but no, I don't, I don't think we'll, we'll, we have to plan to go there. Um, but it's, it's, definitely, it's definitely an option. And, um, you know, considering that he's run very well there three times, um, you know, opposition-wise, it may be sensible to go back there. And you mentioned your filly, Mise-en-Seine, who, who ran such a fine race, a little unlucky at Newmarket on, on Future Champions Weekend, not to finish a, a little closer. What's the plan for her? So she's come out of the race really well. Um, she, was, she was unlucky, but she's lost nothing in defeat. Um, you know, she, she's, uh, she's a beautiful filly, and she's actually going to go out for the Breeders' Cup, which we're all very excited about. So she'll run in the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Phillies Turf, yes? Yeah. Yeah. 
And how do you feel the, the dimensions of Del Mar and the test that that presents will, will suit her? Um, obviously, it's a very tricky track. Um, but she's, you know, she's still very lightly raced, so she'll be going there a fresh filly. Whereas a lot of the horses there have had a hard season. Um, she's, she's, she's very intelligent. Um, and, you know, I think after a few days of training around the track, I think, I think the, the track will be no problem. Uh, she's shown us around uh, Haydock and at home, and uh, when she ran at Goodwood, that she can handle a bend very well. Um, and look, it's, it's, you know, it, it is, it's obviously very, very competitive, and you know, a lot of luck needs to go your way. But you know, just to, just to have the opportunity to go out and compete at the Breeders' Cup to such supporting owners just, just fills us with joy. And you know, win, lose or draw, you know, she'll 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 give it her best, and you know, we'll, we'll hopefully give the owners a lot of pleasure going. Really pleased to welcome Lorcan Williams to the Racing TV studio today. Part of a, a whole raft of exciting young jockeys to emerge from Wales over the last few years. Connor Brace, Ben Jones, Sean Bowen, James Bowen, Richard Patrick, Jack Tudor. But uh, sitting right there in the thick of them all is uh, Lorcan as uh, joint number two to, to Paul Nichols at the moment. Um, Lorcan, uh, good to see you. What a, what a talented group from, from Wales at the moment. Why do you think that is? I'm not too sure. I think... Um... We're all a great bunch of lads. We've known each other for a very long time. We all pony race together, and uh, yeah, we're a, quite a tight unit, and we uh, we all communicate with each other. But yeah, it's nice to have uh, the weighing room full of friends. Yeah, so you you've you've known all these guys and ridden against them for you know since you were old enough to ride, pretty much. Oh yeah, definitely. Well, the the Bowens only only live uh, roughly forty minutes away from me, and uh, Connor Brace is not too far, and Jack Tudor and. Also, Richard, we're all a tight unit and we're all very good friends. Now, you could have competed in most any sport. You were a pretty handy rugby player, weren't you? In your, in your, well, you're still very young, but like when you were even younger. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, yeah, I took the path of, uh, of riding, which was always my dream as a young, young boy. Um, but yeah, at, at one stage in, uh, in my life, I was, um, I was quite a bit big lad and um, I was. I was playing rugby for my local team, Tenby, and then I played for Pembrokeshire, and I was lucky enough to get um, picked for Scarlets, but um, I didn't turn up on the day as, as I was pony racing. <laughs> and so was it, but that was it? It was just a, a one or the other decision? You knew you had to go down one path or the other? Oh, definitely, because uh, unfortunately, well, it's not unfortunate, it's just something I have to deal with, and that is, is my weight. And at 15 years of age, uh, my mother and father sat me down in the living room and said, well, you've got to pick one or the other. And um, I think I had my first ride at Ludlow for Tim Vaughan, and uh, I never looked back since. And your, your father was a pretty prolific point-to-point -point rider, wasn't he? No, my father... Was it your, was it your mother? No, no, my, no, my mother had a go, and yeah. um, she, she had a bit of fun, but um, no, she, she didn't have a, uh, many rides, so it, everything was to do with the working hunters, really, and uh -huh. that's how I got into it, and obviously at the age of nine, I, I had, a, had a go at pony racing, and it just sort of escalated from there. Okay, so that's how you got into the, the pony racing yes, side of it, and yeah. you were still showing at the same time? Yeah, so um, showing was something I, I always done from a young age, and I was, uh, we went competing all over the country, David Brooms and Summer and Winter Champs, and my mother and father were very supportive. Um, I, I loved it and slowly I grew out of it because racing was just something I, I loved. I loved the thrill of, of the speed and everything and that sort of took over. And so you went to Paul Dickles at what age? Um, at 15 years <laughs> of age, yeah. So um, I, I went there just just before my 16th birthday and I, I, I've... I've been there for, uh, the whole time now. Um, I actually I won an award at the British Racing School uh, for a week's work experience at, at, at Paul's, and um, I went there and um, I was sort of under the wing of Harry Durham at, 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 for that week. Um, was lucky enough to a school uh, school, which was it was a privilege. And uh, Paul said, "Would you like to come back in your summer holidays?" And I did. And he said, when you turn 16, would you like to come for a job? And I, I said, I'd love to. It's just a dream come true. So what were those first few weeks like? I mean, you seem a confident guy now. Were you a confident 15, 16-year-old? Oh, no, definitely not. So <laughs> I, we, we write, write, used to write, well, we still do. We ride one lot and have breakfast, and everyone sort of sits down in the lads' room. And uh, being 15, I was quite intimidated, so I just used to walk around the yard and look at all the horses and uh, think... 
what would it be like to just have a ride for Paul? Never mind riding winners. And um, yeah, it's, it's brilliant. And, and what, did, what did he say to you at that time? What sort of encouraging noises was he making in, in your direction to make you think, oh, this could, this could go all right? Well, I, I, I think I didn't have really any... Um, I, I had ambition, but I wasn't sure in w- what direction to go. So um, when, when Paul, I, like, he, he, he offered me to school, and I, I'd love to, and I got on really well, and... Yeah, it just it just things progress slowly in, in in the right way, and he just sort of guided me slowly, and it's 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 worked out well. And so, when did you sort of feel at home there? Um, I think I, I always felt comfortable at Pauls because, lucky enough, Sean Bowen had started there at the time, and um, Sean was there for a long time. He bought his f- first house near Ditcher, and I lived with him for about four years. So, me and Sean were very close friends. So everything was always comfortable with, uh, with Sean around, you know. So, yeah, I, I was never, uh, I was always at ease. Do you think that's important to have a, a mentor, someone who's just maybe just a couple of years ahead of you, just to help you as you make your way? Definitely, and Sean, Sean, Sean was great, you know, um, because leaving home at 15 and being three hours away from home, um, you need someone to look up to, and um, there was plenty of people there. But like I said, I lived with Sean for four years, so it, it was it was comfortable. And in terms of getting onto the race course and and riding winners, you mentioned you had your first ride for for Tim Vaughan, and you were you were you were very young. When did you feel that you belonged in in races? Um, I I, so I had my first season um, as amateur and in point to points and. Um, to, to be honest, I, I wasn't actually enjoying it that much because it's it's hard to get on the good horses, yeah. and I wasn't. I was probably taking rides that I shouldn't have have t- taken because I was inexperienced. And um, uh, the first real time I, I really enjoyed it was actually I had rides for um, Sally and Robert Olner at, at Lark Hill, point to point, and I rode my first ever double there. And um, Rose and Sam Loxton, they also provided me with winners in my second season, and I think I rode I rode something twenty twenty odd winners that season, and I was behind a friend of mine, James Bowen, in the novice title, and I just had had the real I loved it. I loved that season, and it, it just sort of felt that I wanted to go to the next stage. Then uh, you mentioned um, Robert Ulner. He had a, a huge impact on so many people's careers and and you obviously were lucky enough to just experience a little bit of 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 his wisdom before we sadly lost him yeah definitely you know um he even though after the accident obviously he 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 was paralyzed from the neck down but he used to turn up at at lark hill in in the car and they'd put him at the highest point so he could see the whole track and i'd then after 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 riding for sally and robert i'd go and go and speak to him and uh he wouldn't miss a trick. I can assure you that he'd he'd say, "Well, you missed four out." Whereas I I think people might not have seen that. He he, he I'm sure he'd see it. Yeah, it, it's hard to it's hard to sort of overstate really the, the the sort of legendary status he had in in sort of southwest jump racing. Oh, massively, yeah. And he, he was such a horseman. Uh, like I said, he'd never never miss a trick, and uh, and also Sally used to keep me on my toes as well. So that sort of gave you the right grounding. Then you sort of started feeling you, you had the confidence to go forward. Yeah, definitely. And I, I, I wanted to turn conditional the next season. And I, I went up to Paul uh, into the office and had a word with him. And Paul actually told me to wait, which was the best thing he ever done uh, for me. And um, I waited that year. He said, try and be champion am- amateur. And lucky enough, I was uh, champion amateur. And um, and then I was sort of humming, humming and ahhing whether to pursue a career in the amateur field um, because obviously my size, and when you're you're a young lad, you think you have to do ten stone. Well, that that isn't the case. And uh, again, Paul dis- made the decision and sent me off for my conditional course. And uh, yeah, it's been great. I'm interested in you saying that's that's not the case. So, how did you figure that out? That actually it wasn't crucial to ride at, at ten stone. What can you ride at comfortably? I mean, you look incredibly fit and healthy. Like you don't look as though you've been you've been sort of wasting away. No, well. Uh, as I've got older, I've got a bit more more wiser, and I take take the rides I think I should take if they are lightweights. Um, but like the benefit with being with Paul, you know, there's he's always claiming off the off the top weights, so that is a massive benefit. And and also, um, I slowly worked out that if you can just claim off novices for Paul, because they're they're so 
they're, they're highly talented novices and they're always fit and forward that I always have in the back of my mind. As long as I can claim off novices, then it, it's never an issue. So, um, yeah, it, and my agent, Ian Popham, helps me out a lot. And so 10-7, 10-8, that kind of... Yeah, and if... if it, uh, Ian will call me up and he'll say, look, we got 10-5, I think it's worth doing it, then then I'll do it. But as, uh, like I said, Ian's brilliant because he gives me plenty of time and allows myself to get, get to the right weight. It's a sign perhaps that you know we're moving in the right direction philosophically on that, that a jockey such as yourself, a young, talented jockey, doesn't force themselves to do something that's unnatural, completely unnatural for their body. Obviously, it's a little unnatural, but not to an extreme. Definitely, and... I, like I said, from from a young age, I always thought you had to be ten stone and and so forth. Um, but with all the help you can get at the moment, mm. it it, is, it changes the, your mind and you realise actually I don't have to be ten stone. And there's probably there's a good handful of us in there who don't do ten stone. So uh, it's yeah. So you're fit and you're strong. It was an irony, really, that you know, having been champion amateur, you had to wait until you were a professional to win the Cheltenham Fox Hunters on on Porlock Bay because the guy who was supposed to be riding him couldn't ride him because of COVID. <laughs> yeah, I know, quite bizarre, really. I, and um, it, 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 I've told the story many times before, but it, it was quite funny actually. To just sitting on the sofa, um, I think I was going going to ride out for Dan Skelton, and uh, I was sat sat on the sofa and. Will phoned me up and he just said to me, we're going to win the Fox Hunters. And I didn't actually know what he was on about because at this point I didn't realise that amateurs couldn't ride. And, um, yeah, he talked me through it and said he had Porlock Bay and, and so forth. And, uh, yeah, you, it, the dream come true. It did. This is Porlock Bay, left of shot, the red and blue colours, just absolutely swinging into contention in, in the Fox Hunters. He was a big prize, but I always sensed that there was massive confidence, as you said, from Will Biddick and from you that this horse was the, the real deal. Yeah, well, um, he had his prep run at, at Wing Canton, and Will just said to me, just, just ride him as if he doesn't stay, because he's, he's only ever ran over two mile in France, and he did win a two mile four point a point, but it, it never proved the trip. So, uh, Will that day just said, just take your time and, like I said, don't, don't ride him as if he doesn't stay. And I probably, um, I probably could have won if if I knew he had stayed. But uh, the bigger picture was Cheltenham, and uh, we we rode a, a a patient patient race, and it, it paid off. This was pretty agonising the last hundred yards, wasn't it? Because you travelled so well into the race. Yeah, it was. And as you can see there, I just uh, put my hands back onto the reins to to keep him nice and straight, but. I thought I thought I was going to go away from him for a minute, and then I could feel him just bearing down on me. But lucky enough, the line came quick enough for us. Yeah, for those of us who backed you, we we owe you one big time. But those <laughs> those last few yards were absolutely agonising. Yeah, and um, I remember Matt Chapman at the top of the hill asking, telling me I won, and I, I just I wanted to believe him, but I just wanted to just wait until it was called out on on the on the big tannoy and lucky enough it was. So strange Cheltenham Festival, weird circumstances to get a winner. Did it make any difference? Oh, definitely not. No, I, I, I had I had three brilliant rides at, at Cheltenham actually, um, uh, with Duke de Geneva in the Grand Annual for Paul, and then Langadan in the in the boys' race, and unfortunately we bumped into one. But yeah, actually the one I forgot about was Paul Lock Bay, and it was the one who turned out to be be the winner. Uh, five million pound prize money row erupts as negotiations between Ark and Horseman um, break down. And then the following day, as I said to Maddie in the paper there, uh, this is Hugo Palmer, they were trying to bounce us into increasing the racing product. Horseman hit back at Ark over collapse of prize money deal. And you will hear distinctly different views amongst, uh, amongst trainers on this. Jamie Osborne joins me, first of all. Now, Jamie, you're, you're someone who um, believes that, that the NTF shouldn't have scuppered this, your trade body shouldn't have scuppered this, and that, uh, and that you should have taken the deal that Art were putting on the table. Why? Well, Nick, I believe that um, you know, the, 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 the issue for this sport, quite clearly, the biggest issue that it faces is prize money or lack of it. And here we have a race course group that are willing to put a £3.7 million extra on top of their current uh, executive contribution, which is then going to generate on the forecast another 1.3. So we'll call it £5 million, um, in return for an extra race on the card. And 
we, you know, the, the whole industry knows that the biggest problem for racing is lack of funding. And we've got a race course group willing to put up more money in exchange for one extra race on a card. And I don't think that it is right that we turn that opportunity down. We should be um, aligning our interests with the race courses, not having these battles. Um, and clearly, you know, ARC would have the data to show that the extra meet at the extra race uh, means that things are significantly more viable. Um, we've been having nine race cards since COVID, and to my knowledge, nobody has really complained about them. Um, I think they're quite attractive in many ways. Um, and let's face it, if we don't innovate, if we don't try something different, this is an opportunity to make the pie bigger and share in it. Um, I fully understand everybody's concerns about field sizes, uh, turf management. I mean, the field size one, let's face it, um, we have no real proof of what will happen to the field sizes. Um, we don't want to see the, the, the product um, become uh, too diluted. But at the same time, neither do ARC. You know, their model with, um, with their turnover, the way that they've structured their deals with the likes of Flutter, they are also dependent on having field sizes. So I think we need to work together um, to address those things. And sure, there may well be some teething problems along the way. But to just dismiss it um, and turn down £5 million, which will then evaporate, to, it'll just disappear. Um, I just don't think it makes a lot of sense. The other point as well, Nick, is that, you know, if we do do this, it's, a, it's, it's innovation. Um, it doesn't have to be cast into stone forever. You know, it's very easy for BHA and the Horsemen's Group to have a legally binding document that will that can reverse this in the event that worst fears occur. Um, so I think to turn down £5 million at this stage, at a time like this, where we really do require more money into the, into the prize money pot, I think is wrong without giving it a chance. Jamie, your your opponents would say that horse racing is simply sending itself down the same road as, as greyhound racing. Um, Hugo Palmer this week said more money's being bet on greyhound racing than ever. The attendances are nearly zero. We don't simply want to be a betting product for the profits of ARC, and this proposal has been, been very rushed. I mean, the, the notion is that, yes, this will generate short-term gain, but the pain will be long-term, and the sport will be even less recognisable um, in, in 10 years' time. Nick, what we're talking about here is over the course of a year, we're talking about 160 races uh, out of 10,000. And actually the stumbling block that actually broke this deal was 40 races in January. Um, so we're not talking about a huge radical change. We're talking about, we're talking about just an extra race on a card which unlocks £5 million. Let's just not lose sight of what that, those numbers actually are. That's a significant amount of money. Um, I don't buy into the fact that we will end up like dog racing. It's a completely different sport. If you look at other jurisdictions around the world, most of them run eight, nine, ten race cards. That has been proved to be a model that works. Um, the jockeys now obviously can only do one meeting. Um, We've addressed the stable staff, or the racecourse group have addressed the stable staff, for sure. And it's going to, there are going to be difficulties. There are undoubtedly going to be difficulties along the way. But we need to work together, align our interests, and share in that bigger pot. You know, I mean, it, you know, there isn't anybody in racing, I'm repeating myself now, but there is nobody in racing that doesn't understand that the biggest problem is lack of prize money. And here we are with £5 million on the table. And for a little tweak, a little experiment that we can put a stop date into, we are turning it down. To me, I just don't think it's right. Hi, Jamie. Um, Maddie here. Do you think this is going to have an impact on, on future discussions 
Do you think this is we're going to regret making this decision? We, we're in the driving seat. We can. We, no, I don't. But we're in the driving seat. Um, you know, uh, we can we can make this a trial period, and ultimately, that is what all parties want. Are concluded. If this doesn't work, they don't want it. I mean, they are to a degree taking a chance and putting this money up in the hope and the belief that the field sizes will hold up and they will receive the, the revenue from their betting partners that they work with. Um, as far as the long term is concerned, to my knowledge, nobody has a wonderful utopian plan for the future of racing um, that will change the structure of it, change the relationship between the race courses and the bookmakers and us. Um, unless somebody is going to come up with that wonderful master plan, um, I think that we should take what is on the table. Uh, maybe in the background somebody can work on that wonderful master plan where the relationship between all the different bodies changes. But, right, but that's going to take time. Um, and nobody, uh, you know, in the short term, what we need into this sport is more money, an extra five million pounds. So I don't think it's I don't think it's gonna have any detrimental long term impact. It could even be that it proves that this model is the model that works, is the model that unlocks more money and allows us to align ourselves more with the race courses and grow that prize money pot. Jamie, thanks. Uh, Jamie Osborne there, um, who clearly believes that this deal with ARC should have been taken. Uh, Eve Johnson-Horton, who trains not too far away from Jamie and, uh, like Jamie, is a regular guest on this show, joins me now. Eve, you take a rather different view, don't you? Uh, I, I do take a different view. I mean, I do agree with Jamie. We all want more prize money. That's, you know, it's not rocket science. Yes, we all want more prize money. But I do take a different view that uh, this is a magic panacea to the prize money. Well, this is not a this is not a magic panacea. So, what's your fundamental issue with what ARC are proposing? The fundamental issue is I, I'd like to say it is not. It's not like Jamie said. We've not said no. We've been in negotiations with them. They put forward a, a view. We've come back with another view. It's called a negotiation. That's what happens in this business. Martin Crudditch has paid a lot of money to make us look like fools, which you know it's, it's quite easy to do because. We've barely got an A-level between us as trainers. Um, you know, we train racehorses. We don't, we aren't here to negotiate. But, uh, you know, to just to articulate, that's not what we're good at. Um, and he does it very well. And he puts across the view that we are the bad guys and we will not negotiate. We haven't walked away from these negotiations. ARC has. We have been very, very close to a point where we're, get, we're getting... Uh, it done. We don't like the deal, but we are trying to do a deal. So to keep saying that we're not doing a deal is completely and utterly wrong. What specifically is it that, that you and, and others, um, I've, sp I've spoken with Rafe Beckett this week, he's, he's always um, very interesting on subjects like this, Hugo Palmer likewise, what is it that you and others specifically don't like about the way that the deal is framed as of Monday last? I think specifically because they don't want it as a trial basis. They want to have a rule change. We all know that once you've changed the rule, it's almost impossible to change it back. Um, and if there's going to be 10 race cards at ARC, there'll be 10 race cards at the what, Jockey one, Club. Nine and race cards, they're suggesting, are nine they? race cards, well, splitting up to 10, I think they're quite happy, is what they're aiming for. And also, um, the other thing is, we have been sold down the road this road before. We were promised huge prize money on Sundays to race on Sundays, so we all went ahead with it, and it's been diluted down to nothing. We promised that more racing and better racing if we had 48-hour declarations, and that's diluted down to nothing. So forgive me if we are a little bit cynical about this. So do you think that's what's informing your, your view, the fact that you've been burned by past experiences when uh, prize money has been offered? I, I think that it does, certainly doesn't help. Um, and I think we are very happy to try things on a trial basis, but it's got to very much be on a trial basis. Uh, but is, is ARC not 
suggest not agreeing to a, a trial? From what Jamie Osborne was saying there, he says it's just a year, we try it for a year, and if it doesn't work, then we, we can it. In my understanding, that's not that's not what I that's not what I've read. But I'm I'm not completely. I have to say, as I say, I spend a lot of time trying to train my resources, not and trying to read as little paperwork as possible. So I'm not 100 percent sure. But as far as I understand, they they, they once once we've got these nine races or ten races, it's never going to go back, is it? Is there a philosophical issue for you here? Because I know it is for people like Rafe, it is a philosophical issue about the, the way the sport is, the way, the, the, the way it appears, the way it's presented, the way it's portrayed, its kind of sustainability, if you like. Well, I think so. And also, every single um, report that's been done by anyone or survey, the one thing people say, apart from they want more prize money, is less racing. Everybody wants less racing. Trainers want less racing, the staff want less racing, the jockeys want less racing, the punters want less racing, the public want... There's not one person that wants more racing. So why do ARC want to put more racing on? Because it'll make them more money, and they say if it makes them more money, it'll make you more money, and that's, that's the crux of the argument. But it can't. I mean, it, I just cannot understand how more racing is not better. I think you've got to put quality over quantity.